What if we could hit fast forward and look at our lives from the vantage point of the future? What would we change? What would we do differently? How would we uh, prioritize our lives differently? This is a common theme in books and movies. Um, you think of Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. He gets a glimpse of the future, which then causes him to go back to the present and live differently. Of course, Back to the Future has this same theme, Doctor Strange, Avengers. Like something happens or happened, and you have to go back to fix it or change it in light of that future reality. If we know the future, we live differently in the present. Last year, I watched the documentary, Welcome to Wrexham. It's about a fifth division English soccer team that gets purchased by Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds, and their goal is for, uh, to invest in the team and for the team to reach promotion. So they go through the season, they're trying to go to the next league. Any soccer fans in the house? Nah, okay. Um, I had seen in the news what happens to the team. I, ha I knew how the season ended, but my wife didn't. So we watched those, that season, we watched that show completely differently. My wife was anxious and worried. She rode the highs and the lows with every win and loss with the team. Me, I was calm and I was cool. They'd win, they'd lose, they'd play terrible, they'd play great. I was pretty settled. When you know the end of the story, it changes the way that we watch. And this is what Jesus is talking about as we begin, as we continue to look through the gospel of Luke. We're getting to chapter 12, verse 35, and Jesus is giving us a glimpse into the future, and he's inviting us, based on what is coming, to live differently. He allows us to press fast forward and look at our lives from the vantage point of the future and maybe see things differently in our current situation. Awareness of future realities provides clarity for present responsibilities. Awareness of future realities provides clarity for present responsibilities. Where we ended in the story last week, Jesus begins talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming, he says. And this is a theme that Jesus speaks on often. There's a kingdom that is coming. There's a future when Jesus, God's true king, will rule and reign over a renewed creation. So Jesus prepares his disciples to live between the times the time of his first coming and the time of his second coming, he teaches them to be citizens of a kingdom that has come in part, but has not yet come in its fullness. He invites us to live as those who are ready and those who are waiting for this kingdom. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 12, and we're gonna start in verse 35, and I'm gonna read a little bit, and I'm going to comment because the way this uh, passage is structured is we have four images that Jesus gives us that all point to what it looks like to live as those ready for the kingdom of God. Verse 35, 
Stay dressed for action. Let's pause right there. The first image is the battlefield. This phrase literally means keep your loins girded. In that time, men wore robes, which I imagine kind of like a kilt with nothing underneath. So it might have been comfortable, but it was not good for work and it was not good for battle. So if they were going to do hard labor, if they were going into a battle, they would put on a special belt and they would say they were girding their loins. They were getting ready for action. This is not historically accurate, but I imagine it a lot like this. William Wallace. Ready for action with a kilt. And it's a funny metaphor for, for us and our culture. It's, it's not obviously a very foreign metaphor to us, but the point is clear. Live ready. Gird up your loins. Stay dressed for action. Stay dressed as if you were about to go into the arena. It's the same image we see the people of God having at the Passover in the Exodus, right? God says, we're, I'm going to lead you out of Egypt. You got to stay ready. I'm going to need you to stay dressed. I'm going to need you to pack your bags. And so when the time is on and I say go, you're ready to go. Stay ready. The first image is the battlefield. The second image, let's keep reading. And keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door for him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. He will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Image number two. The wedding feast. In those days when a rich person would go to a wedding, the, the length of the time away was not clear. So the servants of the house would have to stay ready for the people to come back from the wedding. Um, it might be a long journey. They might have gotten delayed. The wedding might have lasted longer than expected. The wedding might have started later because other guests were delayed. So when you left for the wedding, the servants had to stay ready because they didn't know when the master would come back. You imagine amazing um, wedding ceremony like in the movie Crazy Rich Asians. You remember that movie? Right? This is not just, hey, bye, honey. I'm going to be gone for a few hours. No, no, this is an affair that we are going to go to, and it's going to take some time. And so the servants had to make sure that the person coming back had a warm house, <laughs> the, you know, the fires were burning, that they had, uh, the lights were on for the master of the house, because they didn't want to come into a cold house in the middle of the night with no greeting. We understand this, Right? It's like when your spouse goes out with some friends and they're, they're out late and they're coming back and you stay awake for them. Like that communicates something. Like, oh, I'm, I'm here waiting for you. I've left the light on. Or if you're on a journey or a road trip and you show up to your friend's house, you got stuck in traffic, it's 2 a.m. and the lights are on. And they open the door and they greet you with a smile and your bed is ready and they have a cup of tea for you and a snack. And you're like, they were ready for me. They were watching for me. 
That's the picture that Jesus is giving. Keep the lamps burning. Stay awake. Stay alert. Stay ready. Verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The third image is the image of a break-in. The point here is pretty simple. Robbers typically do not schedule their break-ins. You ever got robbed and the guy's like, I'm coming at 3 a.m. I'm going to be there. No, it's a surprise. It's not like these guys. What was their problem? Kevin knew when they were coming. Real thieves come at the unexpected hour. So we have to try to keep our stuff safe at all times. We lock our doors all night. We put our valuables in the safe all the time because we don't know when that robber might come and try to take them. Jesus is not saying, I'm here to steal your stuff. He's saying that I am coming at a time that you will not expect. It's a surprise. Like a thief in the night. We have to be ready. Verse 41, and Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us, for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is a faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants, servants and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more. The fourth image we see in this text is the steward. The word here that's translated manager literally means steward. That means a person who doesn't own the assets, a person who manages the assets on behalf of the owner. And for this image, I'll give you one more picture. I imagine this a lot like the show Downton Abbey. Carson. Right? He did not own the house, but he ran the house. Right? He was in charge of all the activities that were happening. He was taking the owner's resources and using them for the owner's purposes. And you could imagine, as the story helps us imagine, what it might look like if the steward believed the master wasn't coming back. Be like, His family's been gone for a while. I guess I'm in charge. I guess technically all this stuff is mine. If they don't come back, this belongs to me, so I'm in charge. I'm the new authority, so the servants are not acting right. Let's beat them. The master's wine closet, his pantry, his, his food, mine. Let's just indulge a little bit. 
And these are the four images that Jesus gives us that really point us to the same reality. We are to have a posture of readiness, posture of waiting for Christ's return, for his kingdom to come in full. We are to be those with a posture, as we're going to see, that's twofold. A posture that's awake and a posture that's faithful. So let's see that. Awake. Are we awake to the reality of God? Are we keeping our lamps burning? When the master was away at the wedding feast, the temptation was not for them to be like, you know what, I don't, I don't believe in the master anymore. Yeah, I just don't believe he's, he's around. I don't believe he exists. That really wasn't the temptation. No, the temptation was just to fall asleep. To get lulled to sleep and miss his presence. Verse 35, keep your lamps burning, it says. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are not just watchful for his presence that is to come in the future. We are to be watchful for his presence with us now. Do you remember the scene where Jesus says, I'm going away? And his disciples are like, where are you going? Can we come? And he's like, well, I go to prepare a place for you. And they're like, great. Like, how do we get there? And he goes on to tell them, he's like, well, I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. So yes, I'm preparing a place for you that you will go to one day, hallelujah. But at the present moment, I'm sending my spirit to indwell you. So yes, we are watchful and we're awake to what is coming, but we must be watchful and awake to what God has given us right now. The psalmist expresses this so beautifully. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. I love the image of the watchman on the wall. He's got the night shift. And he's watching. He's diligent. He's trying to stay awake. He can't doze off. He has to stay vigilant. He has to stay alert. He has to be watchful. That's his role. And then the morning comes. And all is well and all is good. Think about what Jesus said in Revelation 3. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And this is an amazing piece of scripture, and we often use it when talking about someone first coming to know Jesus. Right? When someone first invites Jesus in, we say, oh, you know, he answered the knock, knock at the door. But actually, this scripture is written to Christians, written to the church. It's an invitation like Jesus has here to keep the lamps burning. It's an invitation to intimacy and fellowship. Now I stand at the door and knock. Let's not be those on the outside 
Let's be those who open the door and not just know about Jesus, but dine with Jesus in his presence. I'm standing at the door knocking, he says to the church. Will you let me in? Would you be awake to my presence now? See, the temptation is to be so preoccupied with everything else going on in our lives, we get lulled to sleep to the things that are most important. We might get a lot of good stuff. We might get the family we wanted. We might get them in the sports we wanted them to get into. We might get them in the school we wanted them to get into. We might get the the career change that we wanted and the apartment that we wanted. We might get all of these good things and miss God. We've fallen asleep to what's most important. He's knocking, but we're unavailable. He's moving, but we didn't notice. He's speaking, but we're not listening. He's calling, but we're too busy with other tasks to answer. What would it look like for you to wake up to the reality of God every single day? To not just be awake physically, but to be awake spiritually, to have our hearts awake to God. I mean, how do you wake up physically? You set your alarm clock, maybe you got a cup of coffee or a pot of coffee, some of you. Maybe you go for a walk, maybe you take a shower, you say, I just gotta get awake for the day. What would it look like for you to do that with God? For us to come before him and say, actually, God, you're the one still in charge today. I'm still your servant today. Here I am. I want to be awake to your presence. I want to know your spirit. I want to walk in step with your spirit. Maybe it would look like us taking in God's word before we take in our smartphones. Say, oh, I need the bread of God, I need the life of God, I need the words of God more than I need my calendar or TikTok or Instagram or the text messages that got sent after I put on do not disturb. Like I need this to orient my day more than that. Maybe it looks like falling on our knees, first thing, and half asleep, you know, our mind half physically awake, just being like, hey, as I physically wake up, God, I want to spiritually wake up, and here I am, God. I want to walk with you today. I'm yours today. Your priorities are my priorities. Your way is my way. So, God, I don't got much to say because I just woke up 30 seconds ago, but that's what I want my posture to be today. Then we go drink the coffee, then we go shower, then we go for the walk, and then we move forward. But the orientation of our heart is like the man on the wall, watchfulness. Like the watchman waits for the morning. Our soul waits for the Lord. So are we awake? Second question, are we faithful? Are we wisely using God's good gifts for God's good purposes? That is at the heart of the image of a steward. A faithful steward is a a, um, role that Jesus talks about quite a lot. Hey, God has given you great gifts. He wants to pour out his grace and his blessings on 
you, but Jesus makes it clear the role you are to play is the one who manages the gifts and the resources and the talents and the schedule and the opportunities. All those things are good gifts from God to be used for God. Well, can I enjoy it? Of course. Steward very much enjoys the resources. But the posture is one of submission. It's all yours, God. Verse 42, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And I love when Jesus talks about this image because it doesn't matter how much you have. You might have very little. You might be like, hey, I'm not as gifted as that dude over there. I don't have as much as that person over there. I haven't had the opportunities of that person over there. And Jesus is like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what they have. Worry about what you have and how you leverage what you have for the glory of God. You got one talent? Fine. That guy's got 10 talents. More will be expected of him. Take your one and invest it. Take your one and steward it for my kingdom. Notice in this parable how this, the posture of the unfaithful servant looks. Notice how it changes. See, the unfaithful servant, he's like, hmm, the master's been gone for a while. I think I'm in charge now. My master is delayed in coming. He begins to beat the male and female servants and begins to eat and drink and get drunk. Instead of faithfully caring for the people, he mistreats them. Instead of faithfully providing for the people in the house, he begins to indulge, to overindulge. As I read this, and I studied it this week, I was reminded of contemporary debates that are going on right now in the world about human rights. What's the basis for human rights? Why should we treat people with respect and dignity? Why should we treat people, especially those who are different than us, with respect? What's the foundation of it? See, in 2012, an atheist philosopher by the name of Alexander Rosenberg, he's a professor at Duke University, he wrote a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality. And he tries to bluntly answer the questions of life, the big questions of life from a purely secular perspective. And here's what he says. Is there a God? No. What's the nature of reality? What physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What's the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. What's the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. What is forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. See, this is the posture that we have when we think the master of the house is not coming 
back. There is no accountability. There is no authority above me. Anything goes. Might makes right. The others in the house aren't acting as you want them to act. Do to them whatever you want to. Anything goes. The other servants are having to go hungry so that you can indulge. Anything goes. And we see in this text, the punishment for this type of living is severe. God is just. But he has called us, his followers, to live differently. You see, one of the marks of someone living faithfully in light of Christ's coming kingdom is that these people serve others across social barriers. You see in this text that the the faithful servant is not the one who beats the servants and starves the servants. He's the one that gives the servants their food in the right time. We're those who believe the master has not abandoned us. The master has not left us. He's not aloof. He's not distant. He's still in charge. He still cares a lot about people. The master cares so much about people that he made them in his own image. He cares about them so much that he came to earth to save them. He cares about them so much that he died upon a cross for their salvation. Our job is to faithfully serve those who Jesus loves. The master is still in charge. His way still goes. The master is going to come back. And we are those who have to live in light of that reality. This is how the church has always done it. In the first three centuries of the church, uh, there were two huge epidemics. And these epidemics wiped out a third of the population of the Roman Empire. Can you imagine? A third of the population of New York City gets wiped out by an epidemic. Two million people. Three million people, gone. The Christians, one of their earliest legacies were how they acted during these epidemics. A bishop by the name of Dionysius wrote in AD 260 these words. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. When others were fleeing from the sick, the Christians stayed behind to care for them. What would motivate them to do such a thing? About a century later, the Roman emperor Julian, uh, who was an adamant enemy of the church, he was frustrated at the pagan priests because the Christians were not only caring for their own poor, but they were caring for his own poor. And this is what he said. These impious Galileans, by whom he means the Christians, They not only feed their own poor, but ours also. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Throughout 
our beautiful, um, the beautiful story of Christ in the world through his church. He has used his people to care for those in need. We have been people fighting for human rights, the modern university system, the hospital system, the orphanages. They were all started by Christians who had this conviction that we are under the command and the authority of God, that he's the master, we're the steward. Our job is not to define what's good or bad. Our job is to obey what God said is good or bad and to care for those whom he loves and those made in his image. And I know I, I talk about being awake, I talk about being faithful, and I think it's a hard passage. You're like, oh, like, what if I am not? What if I, I feel asleep? I feel more like the unfaithful servant than I do the faithful servant. Well, there's really good news in this text. It doesn't just tell us that we should, be faithful and awake. It tells us the power to do that and the motivation to do that. Look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Now we just kind of skimmed by that when we first read it, but this is a truly remarkable verse. This would have been so strange to the readers in the first century. This is a turning upside down of the entire social order. So the servants are awake. They kept the lamps burning and the master comes home. And what does he do? The master tells the servants, sit down. And the master begins serving the servants. And in this context, that would have been absolutely unheard of. The master of the house would never serve the servants of the house. Masters don't act like that. But our master does. Later in the story of Jesus, he's going to find himself sitting around the table with 12 disciples, all with dirty feet. And our master is the one who grabs the towel bends down to the ground to serve his disciples and wash their feet. Our master is the one who said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember, it was our master who did not simply come and serve us with his life. He's the one who served us in his death giving his life for us. And now we've drilled down into the heart of the gospel. Our salvation is not first and foremost about how we can serve God. It is first and foremost understanding how God has served us. You see, in this passage, we see a type of punishment, accountability, type of justice, and we read it, and it's, it's unsettling. It's hard, but it's meant to be because it points us to the good news. You see, on the cross, what was Jesus doing? He was taking the perfect love of God in the perfect justice of God, and once and for all was reconciling them. 
out of his abundant love for us, Jesus took our place. The punishment that our sin deserved, Jesus took and paid for it in full. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This is the good news of the gospel. There's no punishment left for us who are in Christ because Jesus took it. So we now can say with the Apostle Paul in in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation is there? Like maybe like a smidge? Like a tiny bit? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the master of the house came back and served the servants of the house and at the end of the day he's giving the servants of the house the kingdom of God there's no condemnation left I talk to Christians often and they're going through a trial and they're like I think God is punishing me and I always think about the cross and I'll be like no like are you do you trust that Christ what he did for you on the cross, Jesus was punished on your behalf. There's nothing left for you if you trust him. We are watchful because Christ first came for us. We're not looking for him as if we're like, you know, with the binoculars, like, where's he at? No, we can be watchful because he made himself known. We are ready to serve because he first served us. You see, the gospel tells us that once we understand what Christ has done for us and the way the master served the servants, then, as our, then we actually become servants who serve others. And we don't do it out of duty. We do it out of love. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because we want to. So we're like, well, how do we stay awake? We're like, I want to. I love him. I like staying awake for my spouse when she's out late because I love her. I want to see her. I want to be with her. Why do you want to serve? I love serving. Like you do? I, I love serving. He first served me. Learned it from him. Our hearts begin to change. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for this word. We're grateful for this reminder of the future realities that are to come, that the kingdom of God will come in full. King Jesus will rule and reign. That You are still the master who is in charge. You haven't left us or forgotten about us. So we live under your rule. We live under your grace. We live in your power. God, wake us up today to the realities of God. Wake us up. God, help us be faithful in our responsibilities. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.